this is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated and turn with me again to Revelation chapter 22. We are about halfway through the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and I have been holding this sermon since chapter 1, so I'm kind of excited about it. Revelation chapter 22, we're going to look at just verses 14 and 15 this morning. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, you've seen a lot of correlations between the book of Revelation and the Old Testament. Lots of, uh, lots of things um, that are very similar in language. As I've mentioned before, Revelation is like the Rosetta Stone of the Bible. If you don't know Revelation, you won't understand the rest of Scripture. And if you don't know the rest of Scripture, you won't understand the book of Revelation. And so we've seen a lot of things uh, these last battle, the city that's promised, the king that's coming, the promised Messiah. All of those things are foretold about Christ and about the kingdom that he brings. And we see other details along the way, people, thing that people, things that people struggle with. This thousand year millennium, the rapture, the tribulation, those things are, they run all through scripture. It's not something new that shows up in Revelation that we have to figure out. We just have to know the Old Testament so that we understand what it's talking about. Things like the mark of the beast and the mark of the lamb, which present themselves in Revelation and people get wrapped around the axle about it because they forget that was already talked about in Ezekiel. But it's not just the Old Testament. Revelation is tremendously tied to the New Testament as well. So there's unity throughout from, um, uh, from Genesis all the way to Jude in in. Then there's the book of Revelation. It ties them all together. Uh, and as I read earlier, we read from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. And most people are very familiar with the Beatitudes. It's a very popular, um, very popular text to go and to preach from because there's lots of promises there. So while we are familiar with that, we are probably less familiar with the seven Beatitudes that we find in the book of Revelation. And the first one appears in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. And then they're sprinkled throughout until we come to this text this morning, which is the final one, the last of the seven Beatitudes. Remember this number seven 
carries significance. It, it carries the idea of completeness, like the week has seven days. And in Revelation chapter 1, we've read about the seven spirits of, of God. It means the completeness. So we will go through these seven Beatitudes this morning. I've been waiting to do that as we've hit each one. I think I might have mentioned that it was a Beatitude, but I've been waiting to get to the seventh one so that we could talk about them. So we'll go through them one by one. But first, I would like to talk about the nature of Beatitudes. While, as I said, we are most familiar with the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes were not unique to the Sermon on the Mount, or the New Testament. They do occur in the Old Testament. They also occur in some ancient Jewish literature and even some pagan literature. Um, but some references in the Old Testament. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for him. In Proverbs 3, 13 and 14. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. And finally, Psalm 32. I mean, this is not the final one. There's more, but this is my final example for this morning. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in those spirit there is no, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you see these promises of blessings run throughout Scripture. But what does it mean in this context to be blessed? For the Sermon on the Mount and for the book of Revelation, the seven Beatitudes there, the Greek word that's that's translated blessed is makarios, makarios, and um, it has gone through some changes in its meaning through the years. It's been pretty stable since the New Testament time, but in ancient Greece, makarios referred to the gods. This Greek word, when it meant the blessed ones, it was talking about the gods, because they lived in a state of joy and contentment, that was beyond all the struggles and worries of ordinary people like you and I. They were beyond the cares and the labors and even death. So, to be truly blessed in this sense, you were a god. Or you must have been a god. Or you must be a god. And then as time went on, men began to claim to be actual gods on earth. So, Makarios eventually took on a second meaning. It began to refer to the dead. And you can read about this when you read about the, uh, the rise of the, the emperors of Rome, the Caesars, and how each successive one began to claim more and more deity to themselves until finally you get to some like Nero and Domitian who claim that they are incarnate gods on earth. Some of them held back that claim until they were... Um, they were until they had died and, pa and, and passed on. So this eventually took on a second meaning, this word, and referred to the dead. The blessed ones were humans through death had reached the world of the gods and they had become gods. So like the gods before them, they too were now 
beyond the struggles and worries of earthly life. So to be blessed at that time, you had to be a god or you were dead. But eventually, wiser minds prevailed. And Mercadios came to refer to the elite. They began to refer to those people who were wealthy and powerful and who had the wealth and the power and the means to live or to try to put themselves above the struggles and worries of ordinary people. The peasants and the slaves who constantly struggle and worry about life. So to be blessed, you were rich and powerful. And then finally, as this Greek word uh, came into contact with Jewish theology, the word makarios took on yet another meaning, and it referred to the results of right living or righteousness. And you see where I'm going with this. If you lived righteously, then you were blessed. You would be blessed. Being blessed meant that you received earthly goods. You received earthly materials. You, you got a good wife, lots of children, abundant crops. You gained wealth and honor and wisdom and beauty and good things. And, and these were all the blessings that God gave to you because you were obviously a good and decent person. But regardless of all these meanings, the understanding in any case was that the blessed ones lived on a higher plane than the rest of us. The blessed were those whose circumstances allowed them to live to some degree above the normal cares and problems and worries of this fallen world. However, Scripture actually uses this term in a totally different way. So however the religious leaders in Jesus' day had meant it, it's not what God intended. It is not the elite who are blessed. It is not the high and mighty or the holier-than-thou religious leaders who are blessed. It is not the people living in royal palaces or expensive mansions who are blessed. Rather, Jesus pronounces God's blessings on the lowly, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the meek, the mourning. We saw that when we read the Sermon on the Mount this morning, or that portion of the Sermon on the Mount. So throughout history, this word had always and only been applied to the wealthy, the powerful, the beautiful. But then along came this man from Nazareth and he puts reality back into perspective. As Scripture says, Jesus makes all things new. And in this worldly kingdom, this worldly kingdom that's passing away, the blessed ones are the rich and the powerful. They are the beautiful ones who get all the attention, who get all the glory in this world. But the eternal kingdom of heaven in that kingdom, in the only kingdom that lasts, in the kingdom that Christ came and inaugurated at His first coming, the blessed ones are the poor and the lowly. The blessed ones are the ones who are outcast from this kingdom, from the kingdom of the world, because they revile you because of Him. So, as we go on, I, I want to point out a couple of, uh, uh, points uh, about the Beatitudes, the nature of the Beatitudes. First is that these Beatitudes, whether in the Sermon on the Mount or in Revelation, these Beatitudes are in the indicative mode. There is uh, several modes in grammar. The indicative mode describes something uh, as opposed to something like the imperative mode, 
which commands something. So the Beatitudes are not imperatives. These are not a list of commands. You cannot earn your salvation by trying to follow these. But there is a proper response. There is a proper response to these Beatitudes. The rebel will say in his heart, I will obey God's commands and I will try to be this way to prove that I am good enough. But the servant says in his heart, I know I can never attain to these standards, but I will strive to honor the one who does and who does so on my behalf. So the Beatitudes are not imperatives. They're not commands for you to try to follow. They are indicatives. They describe something. In other words, they describe someone, someone who obeys Jesus Christ, not because they believe they are worthy of the blessings, but because they know He is. So the Beatitudes are indicative. The Beatitudes are prophetic declarations. The Beatitudes found in Scripture, it's not just practical advice for successful living. You can find some of those in Proverbs, certainly. Uh, But the Beatitudes, more importantly, are prophetic declarations made on the conviction of what is coming, of the coming and already present kingdom of God. So the truth claims of the Beatitudes are not independently true. They are not based upon the subject that claims them. So they're not, and they're, they're not merely observations that anyone can make by looking at someone. We cannot investigate and validate the Beatitudes based upon our own criteria or our own powers of observation. The Beatitudes are an implicit Christological claim. And they take their stand with regard to the speaker, not the hearer. So it's, it's, the Beatitudes are true based on the authority of the one who proclaims them. They are a prophetic declaration. They are not statements, and this is the third point, they are not statements about human virtues. In fact, most of them appear to be the opposite of what you might expect. Rather, the the Beatitudes pronounce a blessing on authentic disciples in the Christian community. All the Beatitudes apply to that group of people, the real citizens of the kingdom. So, the Beatitudes are indicative. They're not imperatives. They're prophetic declarations about more dealing with something to come than what is now. And they're not statements about general human virtues. So, with those things in mind, having a focus, having an understanding, a better understanding of what Beatitudes are in Scripture, let's look at the seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. The first one I said was in Revelation 1-3. Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. So here is the first of the seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And it is a special Beatitude at the very beginning of the book. It it gives a promise that uh, one can be truly blessed and full of eternal joy and contentment even now. Because of what we're looking forward to. Because that time is near. 
Many people consider, as we've talked many times during our study of Revelation, that the book of Revelation, they consider it to be dark and difficult and mysterious, and unfortunately it goes ignored by many. And that is truly unfortunate because this book, this book becomes hijacked by, by uh, false prophets who try to proclaim the future events uh, based on the newspaper instead of based on what God's Word said. They write more science fiction than anything else. But right here at the very beginning, there's a spiritual blessing that is promised to anyone wishing to make the contents of this book known. A spiritual blessing for those who wish to hear it and to understand it. Not, but to hear it, not just with your ears, but with an open heart. To hear it and to contemplate it. Like Mary, when she saw what was going on around her, and she heard the things that people were saying, and she heard the things that her own son was saying, and she held them, and she held them in her heart, like Luke 2 says, that she treasured these things up and pondered them. The book of Revelation was to be read aloud for that purpose. Scrolls were expensive. It's not like it is today, where anybody that can come up with the, you know, uh, the price of a, of a meal can fast for one meal and have the entire Word of God in their hands. And for most of human history, scrolls and books were expensive. So the custom in many cultures was to read this aloud. And naturally, this became the custom of the Christian church. We know that Christ, when He was walking the earth, He would go to the synagogue and He would read aloud the scroll that was presented. And Paul encourages the Thessalonians. He charges them to read this letter before the church. So when we come to the book of Revelation, what is it about? What are we looking at? What are we seeing? Well, we know it's about this promised Messiah. This Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3 and spoken about all through the rest of Scripture until you get to the Gospels, and there he is, and there's his, his ministry, and he inaugurates what he has promised, this kingdom, and authority's been given to him, and now we see this final book where he is revealed to us, and he opens our eyes, he tears away the veil, so that not only can we approach the throne of God, but we can stand and turn and look back over all of Scripture and see what's going on. The Lord Jesus Christ is that promised Messiah. And He removes that veil that exists between us here on earth and the one who is enthroned in heaven. This spiritual reality, this ongoing battle to the final battle, to that eternal destiny of God's people and God's enemies, He gives us a picture of that. And the foremost message in all of that is that Jesus Christ is victorious. The words of the prophecy of this book must be read aloud and they must be heard. Because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He tells us to listen to what He says to the churches. Go back and listen to all those sermons on the seven uh, letters to the seven churches and see what that is opening up for us. It has so much to do with False doctrine, false teaching, what we allow in our church, how we worship. And the words of this prophecy must be read aloud. For the book, from this book of Revelation, believers will know that, the, that no matter how dark times get now, no matter how terrible things may seem, 
The future is bright because Jesus Christ is coming, because the time is near. So, second beatitude, Revelation fourteen thirteen. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, labor for their deeds will follow them. This demonstrates the blessedness of the endurance of the saints. Paul writes to Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, what comforting words those are to those who trust the Lord. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny or disown himself. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Christ says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. This refers to the true believers for this final hour, for their life and in any difficulties they face. It is applicable to all Christians throughout all of history, from the time that Christ prayed it until today. He was praying for us, not to take us out of this world, but the Lord would keep us through it. And so we come to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He's writing to the church in Philadelphia, and he says, Since you have kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming, that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the world. Those who die in Christ rise again with him to eternal life with Christ. Blessed are those who die in Christ. Revelation chapter 16 verse 15 is the third beatitude. 16:15 Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to be so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. What another wonderful encouragement for believers. Like the Beatitudes that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5, here Jesus says, Blessed is the one who stays awake. He says, I'm coming soon. Like a thief in the night who comes completely unexpectedly. So we must be prepared. We must be spiritually awake. We must be prepared. Jesus will come to rescue his own. That was the intent, or the intent uh, in the letter to Sardis was a warning to the church that he would come like a thief in the night. But it is also an encouragement to all the faithful ones in all of his churches throughout history. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. In other words, blessed is the one who is prepared. This should bring to mind the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. Five were prepared for the returning bridegroom and five were not. And here, 
The Beatitude blesses or promises a blessing to those who are prepared. Beatitude number four, Revelation nineteen nine. Revelation nineteen nine. Then the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Jesus tells a parable. Uh, I think in, in Luke 14, about a man who prepared a banquet and he invited all of his friends. He invited very important guests and the, the story seems to imply that he gave them enough time that the invitation was in advance so that they could be ready, so that they could make themselves ready. But then, when he went out to invite them a second time on the day of the event, when everything was prepared, lo and behold, all the guests had an excuse for not going. You remember that parable. One of them had just purchased a field. One of them had bought some oxen. One of them had just gotten married. All of these things are important in personal lives, but none of those things were so urgent that you could not have prepared and you could not uh, have gone to the banquet. They're not urgent enough to justify declining the invitation from this man. They were just poor excuses. So those invited simply did not want to come. They were more involved with their own things. There are some serious parallels in this parable to the actual days of Christ. When the promised Messiah came the first time, he came to his own and they did not know him. They did not care. They were busy with things of this world, with things of this life. The promised Messiah came. Remember, when they built the first temple, when they built the, 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 the tabernacle, the glory of God came down. It was visible to them. They could see it. When they, when they built the temple, Solomon's temple, the glory of God came down. The people could see it. Well, when they built the second temple, that didn't happen. It didn't happen. The Lord had left. You read about that in Ezekiel. The, Lord, the glory of God left the temple. And then... Israel was destroyed, or Jerusalem was destroyed, and they went off into captivity. And then they come back, they build the temple again. The glory of God never comes down upon that temple. Instead, the glory of God visits in the incarnate Son of God, and they rejected Him because they had other things going on at the time. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't exactly the way they wanted it. They wanted a king who was going to save them from Caesar, not from the wrath of God. Then in the parable, the master told his servants to go to the roads, go to the country lanes, and compel them to force them to come so that his house would be full. And in like manner, the Lord Jesus Christ gives that invitation to ordinary people. The beggars, the deformed, the lame, the blind, all the outcasts of his day, the people that society had declared unclean or unfit for the priesthood. In fact, they were unclean and unfit for the priesthood according to the law. But unlike their religious leaders, these ordinary people flocked to Jesus. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to hear what he had to say because he blessed them. He promised these. And remember, they were astonished because he taught as one with authority. And he extends that invitation today. 
It's the same today. Christ extends that invitation to us, to you, to me, to us poor sinners, those who are broken and weak in spirit and body, those who are spiritually blind and lame, those who are paralyzed by fear and anxiety and uncertainty, those who are paralyzed by their own shame and embarrassment. For whatever reasons, Jesus invites us all. We are all beggars when it comes to God's grace and His mercy. And it is by His grace that you are here this morning. It is by His love for you that you are here and you hear this message, that you hear the proclamation of His Word. Not only does He want to save you, but He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to be with you in person. God loved His people before the foundation of the world. And we know that right now Christ stands at His right-hand side mediating for us. But He longs for that day just like we do. I keep pressing this issue that we're longing for this day to come when Christ returns. He's longing for that day as well so that He can celebrate this wedding feast with us. Do you feel blessed? Do you feel the weight of that? Don't get so wrapped up in your worldly things that you deny the invitation. Beatitude number 5 in Revelation 26. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. It is not so long ago that we actually looked at this passage in some depth. But, what does resurrection mean? It means to come back to life after you have died. Ephesians tells us that we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. And this is, of course, a future physical reality because we all know there's coming a day when we will die. But, just as importantly... It is also a present spiritual reality because our sin separates us from God, which is why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. So this first resurrection that Christ is speaking of in Revelation, this first resurrection is a spiritual regeneration. It is a spiritual rebirth wrought by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people. And this means that we are reconciled with God forever. So the first death that comes is your physical death. But that second death, that second death, which is the eternal condemnation of God, of of God's enemies, that will never happen to anyone who has been born again. Those who have experienced this second or this first resurrection, this first resurrection, this This regeneration, this renewal and reconciliation with God, renewal of spiritual life with God. That second death never happens to those who are born again. When Christ fixes your relationship with God, brothers and sisters, it stays fixed. Because you're not the one maintaining it. He is. Amen? Beatitude number six. 
in Revelation 22.7. Revelation 22.7. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Another passage we have looked at recently. It says, look, I am coming soon. One day soon, a day will dawn, and our Savior will return with the clouds at the sound of a trumpet like it's spoken in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Christians throughout all of church history have lived with this expectation. Look, the saints before that lived with an expectation of what was to come. That's why Christ said that Abraham looked forward. They, they, they looked forward to his, seeing his day. So this is a mark upon their lives that they're looking forward to this kingdom and it should be the mark upon our lives. Christians should keep and heed the words of this prophecy for that very reason. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy, prophecy written in this scroll. It has been said seven times. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That was on every one of those letters to every church. He was addressing it to that particular church, but he's telling every Christian everywhere, everyone who has ears to hear, pay attention. So how sad is it, brothers and sisters, that this book of Revelation remains closed during so much of church history? How sad is it that so few hear these promises? So many people put this book away. I mean, even our beloved John Calvin didn't write a commentary on this book. The only one in all of Scripture. And he didn't write a commentary on it. It is almost today... An unspoken tradition in many churches to just leave this book unopened. Every now and then they might reference a scripture in it, but they leave it unopened. So it goes unread. It goes unheard. This book of Revelation is not meant to go through a verse and just pick little verses out that, that apply to something else. That's not how we should approach any scripture. But this book is to be read, and we're coming to that day when we'll do this. We'll sit down and read it from first to last, all the way through. And look at it as a whole. Blessed is the one who heeds and keeps the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Blessed is the one who reads and hears. This is a parallel to uh, Revelation 1.3. Revelation 1.3 tells us that, you're ble- that blessed are those who read and blessed are those who hear. And this one is saying blessed are those who keep the prophecy that is written. The keeping does not simply mean that we preserve it like, like some special heirloom, like, like the servant who took his master's talent and hid it in the ground so that it would go uh, kept and unharmed. No, the meaning is like we mentioned a moment ago with Mary. That you read it again and again. You discover the truth again and again and you let it comfort you. And you clutch it to your heart and in your mind and you ponder it. Blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. Beatitude number seven, which is where we are this morning. 
Revelation 22.4 Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may go through the gates into the city. There is a reward according to works. And Jesus said, Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. We read that in verse 12 of, of Revelation 22. So he, as, as Revelation 2.23 tells us, he searches the hearts and the minds and he sees from where the works flow. But we know that not a lot of good comes out of the natural human heart. In fact, Jesus tells us that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things, these are the things, he says, that make a person unclean. So the works that will be rewarded, they must flow from another source than your own heart. And how do we know? How do we discern the difference then? The good works of natural man, we know by their fruits. And the good works of natural man, he bears the fruit of the wrong tree. There are people in this world today who do an impressive amount of good things. And sometimes they're an example to us. In John's day, the Pharisees lived a life that by all appearances looked spotless and blameless. But Jesus said that our righteousness must exceed even that. Paul was able to claim and honestly claim that as far as righteousness based on the law, he was faultless and no one could bring a charge against him. But then he turned right around and said that all of that all of his good deeds were a pile of dung. He counted them as nothing. And Isaiah says the same thing. He says, all of our good works are filthy rags. But Jesus said, blessed are those who wash those rags. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And I know that you all know this intuitively. But we can gain some insight into this beatitude from Revelation 7.14. When the angel was speaking of that great multitude that John saw, remember, the angel had called out the 144,000, said, behold, the 144,000, he listed all the tribes. But then when he turned to see, when John turned to see, not just to hear the description, but when he turned to see those people, there was a great multitude that no one could count. And the angel told him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You are blessed if you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. It says they have the right to eat of the tree of life. Now, we know that in the garden there were two trees standing there. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there was the tree of life. Our first parents ate from that first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now, sinful man, we think that our works are worthy of salvation. We think our good deeds are worthy of salvation, regardless of what our heart is doing. We believe most people, most people who profess to be Christian, go around with the ethic that if you're not bad enough to go to jail, then you're not bad enough to go to hell. 
I'm sorry, but a lot of people are going to be in hell who never crossed Caesar's laws. A lot of people will be in hell that have never broken a law today. They've never been arrested, never even encountered the police. Because that's man's standard, not God's standard. This is the sin of pride that prevents us from having access to the tree of life. We're good enough. I don't break your laws. I'm good enough to get into this city. And God says, no, your fruit is bad. It is Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. He is the only man to have earned the right to eat from the tree of life. And He grants it to those who surrender to Him. Those who recognize their lowliness. Those who recognize that they are poor of spirit. So these Beatitudes, brothers and sisters, they declare an objective reality as the result of a divine act. An objective reality that is the result of a divine act. They are not subjective feelings that we gain because of our behavior. If you can rewrite the Beatitudes and put in there, happy is the one who does this, then you still miss the point. You still miss the point. The opposite of blessed is not unhappy. Being blessed does not mean that you are happy. Being blessed, the opposite of blessed is not unhappy. The opposite of blessed is cursed. And we see that laid out in Luke chapter 6. We read it earlier today. When Jesus pronounces the blessings, He says, He lifted up His eyes on His, on his disciples and He said, Blessed are you who are poor for your kingdom, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who are hungry, for now you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And blessed are you when... People hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then he turns around and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Isn't that what part of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus was about? Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you who all, woe to you when all speak well of you. For so their fathers did of the false prophets. There is a correlation. There is a corresponding curse to every blessedness in the Beatitudes. And we see that this morning. Throughout all of Scripture, we see this. The same promises. The same two promises that God will bless those who submit to Him. Who humble themselves and repent of their rebellion And He will curse. He will punish sin. So verse 14 tells us, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. A right to eternal life. And they may enter the city by the gates. That's the kingdom that we're looking forward to. Blessed if you are counted as an outcast in this worldly kingdom. Because your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom is coming. And verse 15 tells us that outside, outside of that kingdom, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falseness, falsehood. We see this theme run throughout all of Scripture over and over again. Two kinds of people. 
the citizens of this world, the citizens of the of heaven. Two kinds of fish, the good fish and the bad fish. Two kinds of fruit, good fruit and bad fruit. The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. There's only two kinds of people. And what we see in these two verses, we have an eternal proclamation of the eternal destiny of these two kinds of people. One group is blessed of the Lord. The other group is cursed. One group enters the kingdom of the heaven, the kingdom of heaven. The other group is cast out. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you belong to one group and not the other because the Beatitudes sort of describe you a little bit right now. You're not as rich as the next guy, so certainly you must be the lowly. No, examine your life in light of Scripture. Remember, those books will be opened. And your name will either be in your own book, your life, and that will be read, and you'll be condemned based on the things you did, or your your name will be in the book of life. The book of, of, of the Lamb. Examine your book in light of this book. Examine your life in light of this book. And do what He says. Obey. Regardless of the circumstances now. Obey in everything. Brothers and sisters, lying about little things is just as sinful as lying about big things. Stealing little things is just as sinful as stealing big things. Sexual purity is just as important as murdering someone. And idolatry in any form, all through Scripture, is just as damning today as it was 2,000 years ago. If your life can stand up to biblical scrutiny, then you can claim the promises found in the Beatitudes. But the Beatitudes are not an interest requirement. The Beatitudes are not an entrance requirement for those trying to get into heaven. Remember, they're not imperatives. They're indicatives. The Beatitudes are declarations of those who are already there. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's eight or nine, depending on how you count them. But these Beatitudes do not describe nine different kinds of people who get to go to heaven. There are nine declarations about the blessed people who are now living as those who are part of that kingdom because they're anticipating the day when Christ brings that kingdom. Does that make sense? They're not nine, they're not describing a variety of people that are going to earn their way to heaven. What they're what the Beatitudes are describing, or it's declaring. Uh, the blessedness of those who are already there and who are looking forward to it. So you can read them individually or you can read them like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled and shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called children of God because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are not just historical. They are eschatological. They're not as much to do with about here and now as they are to do with about what's coming. It's a description of who Christians are. It's not a a list of ethics that we must strive to live by. There's a 
a Jewish parable or story that I ran across in my studies for this. It says, There was once an old rabbi, and he said, in the teaching of a class, he says, In old days, there were men who saw the face of God. And a young student spoke up and asked, Well, why don't they see his face anymore? And the rabbi replied, Because nowadays, no one is willing to stoop so low. Nobody wants to see themselves as the poor and the lowly. Especially here in America, where everybody wants to be somebody. Celebrity is the pinnacle of human existence in our culture. We don't want to stoop down. We aren't willing to humble ourselves. But the reality is, as we said a moment ago, we are all beggars before God. We are all spiritually bankrupt. And according to Jesus Christ, in these Beatitudes, it is only the lowly, it is only the humble, who are truly blessed of God, because they have an inheritance to look forward to. It's an inheritance to look forward to. We are blessed in that regard. Like we look upon a young person who has um, an inheritance held in escrow until they reach a certain age. And then it's theirs. They're truly blessed in that regard. Well, that's the same for us. We have an inheritance that's being held in escrow until that day when Christ brings that kingdom. But now is the day to humble yourself before this King of Kings because He is coming. He has already come once to make peace, to offer peace and reconciliation to His enemies, which were some of us, which were all of us until Christ saved us. But next time He's coming to conquer. Next time he's coming to, He is coming to conquer and destroy all those who still stand against Him. So my plea for you today is repent and believe. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Let us pray.